As men, we can become preoccupied with financial success. I've certainly felt that at times myself. But the team and I have designed a quiz that's going to help you improve your intentions to achieve better results for your career and business. And there's a link to it in the show notes. I'll tell you more at the end of this episode. But for now, enjoy listening. From everyone here on the Stories of Men podcast team, we hope both you and your family are having a fantastic festive season. This week, I wanted to share with you one of my favourite episodes from this year. Jed's story shows how much your family can influence you and change you for the better. Look after yourself and have a happy new year. Before we get into today's episode, I wanted to give you a heads up that we're talking about some pretty heavy themes, which some might find upsetting. Take care while you're listening. I just zoned out. I was just there in tears and I was just watching him and I felt like just sick. Just sick and it was like single-handedly the worst thing I've ever, ever been through. Welcome to Stories of Men, Beneath the Surface. I'm Alex Melia. Join me as we discover what it means to be a man in the modern era. In this episode, we'll find out how a young man reacts during a moment of shocking violence. Daniel's dad ran a wheel clamping business. He would go to football stadiums on the weekend clamp cars that were parked illegally, and then wait for the angry drivers to come back and pay up. One Saturday afternoon, back when Daniel was just 17, he went along with his dad to help out with the paperwork. They were parked in their van outside Tottenham Football Stadium, waiting. I was sitting there, I was thinking, I know the people coming back are all going to be lads, lads, football hooligans. And I was sitting there and I was just like, what, what am I doing here? And I remember them walking back. I remember seeing like a tranche of people and they all knew what happened straight away. They could see this big yellow clamp on the car. We've got a, a big van that says parking enforcement. When they clocked us, that was it. They started running over and you could see them. They were like, they switched. So they're like banging on the door saying, get out, what's going on? Oh my God, I was terrified. God, I just felt sick. And I just remember my dad just literally took his seatbelt off, ready to go and open the door and that was it. He, he was ready to go. My dad was, God, five foot, seven, eight. He wasn't a tall guy, bull-headed, grummy, through and through, just got out of the car and was like, right, he was going to pay first. And there was like 15 men there. And I remember they were shouting, screaming at him. They were shouting at me. And he just, he just stood there. His mentality was so strong, it didn't faze him. Like, he just sat there and was like, it's nothing to me. So after they calmed down a bit, they started to pay one by one. So what I was allowed to do, I was allowed to take the clamp off the car. And I took the clamp off, so it was just a big yellow triangle, untied a chain. And what you're meant to do, you're meant to pull the chain to your right, and you're meant to then wrap it around your legs so nobody can take the chain. I was new, I was learning. Pulled the chain to my right and just laid it next to the side of me. But this is like a heavy industrial chain. This, you know, this does not move. You need an axle grinder to cut it. And what happened was, is that as he was, as he was taking paperwork and payment for another person, one of the people had picked up the chain and they basically lashed it round the back of my dad's head. Conk out, back of his head's caved in, bleeding. 
there's uproar, people are screaming and shouting. I just ran over to my dad, I was holding him, I was screaming at this person. I was sat down on the floor, I pulled him by his like shoulder on my thighs. Um, and his like head sort of was hanging over the edge of my thigh and I was just in tears. I was just holding him and I was just looking down. I just didn't know what to do. There was blood everywhere. I had all these strangers around me. I was just there looking at him and people were coming up to me saying the ambulance is coming. I just didn't even clock any of it. I wasn't even, I was just zoned out. I was just there in tears and I was just watching him and I felt like just sick, just sick. And it was like single-handedly the worst thing I've ever, ever been through. He was literally laying there. Do you know what I mean? He was just, he was gone. How long was he in hospital for? And, and at what point did you know that he was, he was going to be okay? Well, I remember the ambulance people, when they were in the back of the car, they were telling me to obviously calm down, you know, and I remember they were doing all these vitals and stuff and they were doing all this. And I remember all I, all I had in my head was if they'd not got that shock thing, then he's okay. Because I saw the beep, you know, they had the, the machine and it was thing. And I remember when we got to hospital, they were going through it all and they said to him, said to me, you know, said he's been in hospital, he's just got to wait, but, you know, we think he's okay. He's lost a lot of blood, but we think he's okay. But I kept on saying, my head, if he hasn't got the shock thing on him, then he's alive. I just kept on thinking that. And he must, he was in hospital for about two months. And like he had broken a skull. He had damage to the back of his, his eye, like afterwards. And he became pretty much, you know, not blind in one eye, but very poor sight. Okay. And what sort of condition is he in now? So unfortunately, two years ago, he actually passed away from cancer. And so that was a, that was a whole different scenario because I remember seeing my dad as this super fit guy. He went through that, that incident and he, again, I mean, after two months, he, when he went back up wind clamping, he was 60 year old and he was wheel clamping. He was just hard as now, ex bailiff, everything. And I remember when he got diagnosed with cancer, that was the only time ever that I saw him like frail ever, um, right to the final day and stuff. And yeah, so unfortunately he's passed away now, but he was like, in my mind, a stereotypical skinhead, man's man, you know, ready to, to ready to throw hands whenever. And then he had probably the, the least compatible son to any sort of violence or any sort of like conflict. I, I think I was just completely opposite. And, you know, it was, it was a very different sort of person I, I knew from when I was younger to the end. It's a constant kind of topic for me that I'm always always fascinated by is letting go and being able to surrender how did you deal with the situation where your dad is in hospital because of the the mistake that you made which probably anyone could have made it was a small mistake you'd made but how were you able to let that go or have you been able to let that go we'll get back to the episode in a second before that i just want to say if you think this episode would be useful to a friend send it along you never know, it might just be the exact thing they're looking for today. And now back to the show. I remember I didn't go, so I didn't go back to work for like a good a good month. And I remember, because uh, it was a family-led biz- led business, my granddad owned it, and we had all these different wheel clampers, and I took the month off, so I was just, I, just, I didn't really have to deal with the situation. And I remember speaking to my mum about it, because she had worked 
in the family business, same as my dad for like, literally like 30, 30 years plus. And I remember just saying to me, she said, like, you know, if it was your dad, you know, he would never hold anything against you and he'd be back out there. And I remember that, I just, that sort of moment when she was talking to me about it, it took me a while to like, accept it wasn't like a, a malicious fault. You know, I thought in my head, I always said to myself, I should do better, I should do better. Acknowledged the situation and just made a real effort to learn from it. I then got my ASI license, uh, started doing a wheel clamping. And I realized very quickly, I did it for about two months. And I just realized that I didn't have the grit in me that my dad, I didn't have the mentality. For him. You know, I'd people would be walking up to the, me when they're getting a wheel clamp and instantly I'm thinking, I'm going back to that scenario. I'm thinking that's going to happen again. What do I do? I was like, this isn't, I, I can't do this. This isn't for me. There's so many different stories I can tell you where other wheel clampers have had paint cans thrown from like 14 story high rise buildings, like next to them, trying to, you know, if it hits them, it kills them. Knives pulled, guns pulled. And I remember I just, I spoke to my mum and spoke to my granddad. I was like, look, I've not got the grit in me to do what you're asking me to do. I can do it. Like technically, I know how the process works, but I can't physically get in my car, drive an hour to London, sit on there, look for an opportunity when somebody's parked incorrectly, and then wait for them to return. It was that element of the wait. And I was sitting there, I was like, I just, I just can't do it. And it's definitely been the most sickening job I've ever done. And I've always been open to challenges and taking things head on and sort of dealing with things that are broken. I like to fix things, but that was just a different kettle of fish. When I'm thinking about a situation where you've clamped someone's car, you put a ticket down, you're waiting for them to come back and you get out of your car. Were you aware of how you were coming across to the other person where you're trying to not show that you're scared, but deep down you are? 100%, yeah. I mean, at this point I was 18. I only did it when I, for when I was 18. But I was relatively small. Half the time they would laugh at me, you know, or they would say, where's the other guy coming? I'd be like, oh, it's me. I'm the guy. You know, I'd have these steel cap boots on that were like, looked like they were massive clown shoes for me because I was still so small. And it was that was an element as well that I hated. I knew visibly that I did not look intimidating, scary. I didn't look like a wheel camper. I looked like a kid. And that was awful because every single time I stood, stood out the car, it was always a battle just from an image perspective, let alone the actual incident where I'm asking somebody for 150 quid to take the clamp off. It was a case of, They've got to take me seriously first. We have these stereotypes of you're a, a vehicle clamper, so you must look tough. You know, I work with people that are like proper jacked up. You know, they are benching God six times a day, very much. And some of them just, again, they, they could not deal with it. And I learned through my dad, 90% of it is mentality. One of the best ever wheel clampers I ever worked with, she was female. She was five foot four, but she was terrifying. You just didn't mess with her. She was just so good at it. And, you know, if you've got the right mentality, you're fine. Something I learned as I got older, uh, I learned more about like imposter syndrome. I learned very fast that that is me through and through. Now, I've always been, I like to think, you know, I've been quite successful in my career. I've done lots of different jobs. I've been an area manager of hotels in London. And, you know, I've uh, managed a contact center of like 300 people and property management. And I'm getting these jobs in theory because I must be good. But every job without fail I've always done, 
I will always come home. I'm like, I'm not doing good or God, I'm going to get the sack or like, that is just my mentality. And I, I think because of that, I, I overwork, I overcompensate. I do too many hours. I know I do. I've always got my missus jumping on me about it and stuff. And I've just obviously had a new, newborn baby. And I think I'm working really hard now to really sort of reflect when I do work well and when I know I'm allowed to take a step back. And I'm really fortunate the managers I've worked in the past have always been supportive, but there's still an element like I still need to like be the best in the world so the CEO likes me, otherwise I'm going to get the boot. That is always seven days a week through my mind. And that's a, it's a hard weight to carry continually forever, definitely. So you're, what you're saying to me is fear is driving you to get better and better. Oh, 100%. I think, uh, it's out, and this sounds like really corny and cheesy, but you know you do those Mr. and Mrs. games. It's like, oh, what's your, your Mr.'s biggest fear? And my girlfriend will always say the fear of failure. Like for me, failing is like just out and out there the worst thing uh, in my mind. Like if I fail once, that no matter how big it is or how small it is, it's the end, it's the end of the world. Because if, if I've failed in my job, if I've got an email wrong or if I've got like a situation wrong with a staff member, you know, in my mind, I'm thinking, that's it. I've got the boot. I'm gone. You know, and I, I've never, I've never been able to overcome that as of yet, you know, and I, and I don't even know if that goes back, to, you know, this could be something crazy subconscious that failing getting that chain right and that incident of what happened could have caused this all these years now. God only knows. You know, other people will take the failings and grow from it. I will take the failings and dwell on them. Why is it as human beings we just go straight to, oh, well, I'm going to get the sack because I sent this email wrong. Why Why do we do that? Like, what, I should say, why do you do that? I think it's pressure. You know, people are scared now to, you know, if you don't have a job nowadays, it's really hard to live. Like, it's really, really difficult. You know, so much of your time is taken up with work. You know, you spend the majority of your life at work. So you need to find a job that you love. You love. That's not an easy feat. And it's, it's not as easy as people make it out to, to be able to just get a job in London, do this movie style way. You find a cafe, find your, your boyfriend by serving a coffee. It just, or it doesn't work like that nowadays. You know, in, I think it's just the, the fear factor. I think just you're, it's subconscious. It's all around you, you know, and the only time, the people that are saying, you know, live your life and, you know, yes, they are super successful, but I guarantee you those people that are super successful, they've had many years or years of pure hardship and hate. And it's only at the top they'll now go, enjoy your life. But they didn't enjoy it the whole way through. I can guarantee it, it just doesn't work like that. Yeah, you're right. And you look at these people in the spotlight and you've got this sort of, this is at the point at which they became successful or they became famous or whatever. And you see this bit, but you didn't see all, all of the graft, all of the, you know, eight, 10, 12, 20 years or whatever of this just hard graft and just this failing. I think it goes back to what you were saying before about the fear of failure is if you only do things that you know that you're going to succeed at, you'll never strive for anything more. So you'll never be able to push yourself as a human being. You do need to push yourself and you do need to strive. And I think you need to have normally people around you as well. Like I've got an amazing friendship group and I've got, you know, the love of my life and, you know, she's so good in that aspect where she's like, you know, come on down, you can do this. Or, you know, she always reminds, she'll remind me and, you know, whoever you've got, you know, well in your life, they, they give you that because you've got to have it yourself. But, you know, I think having the people around you is so much more important. I've done it myself as well. I've had it, I've done the whole lone wolf thing and 
it's not enjoyable. You know, I've lost friends and relationships through it because I've always gone, I'm going to work a million hours a week and I'm going to be the best human in the world and make a million money. And I've done it and it, it just fails. It really does. And it maybe works for some people, but for my experience, it's just you need the people around you to push you. I think normally as well, it takes you to lose something or lose an opportunity to recognize that. You know, like that happened with me. You know, I lost a job and I lost a partner. And in theory, on paper, you looked outside, everything looked amazing. I had this great place. I was renting in London. It was like a penthouse thing. I was living life to the best. But, you know, behind closed doors, it's a different kettle of fish. 100%. Just going back to your dad, once he recovered after those two months in hospital, did you have that conversation with him about what had happened and, and what was his response? Um, no, I don't think I'd, no, we didn't. I think it was more relief he was home. And I think he, he wasn't a talker, you know, he was really old school. You know, it was, he works, God, must have been 50, 60 hours, you know, a minimum a week. He'd come in, work, go home, and it was, it was just repeat. We never really had that conversation. We was never, we was close, but we was close from a just, more of a sounds weird but a distant perspective like we never i never really dealt with things emotionally with him ever and vice versa and we was closest buddies and friends um where nowadays you know there's so much more emphasis on talking about mental health and how you're feeling and stuff which i think is the right thing to do but i think when i was growing up my dad i was close to him because it was always a case of hey doing son i'm good dad how are you good you want a beer yeah and that was it and that made us close which was fine but no, I don't, we ever, we never really discussed it. It was more of a case of he was home, he was safe. And I think it was probably just, I try to block it out. I've spoken to so many friends about their fathers. It's that baby boomer generation. They don't, they don't say very much. Yeah. They, 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 they keep their feelings to themselves and they never reveal any sort of vulnerabilities. And then as a situation with your dad, once they've passed away, you left with more questions and answers yeah. because you never really knew what was going on through their heads. A hundred percent. Yeah, I realise I realise now that when I when I'm driving back from London, I wish I could call him and just say you're all right and actually have a conversation with him. Because I never talked to him before. You know, I was it, when I did talk to him it was always quick chats, a bit about football, that's pretty much it. You know, really sort of like man's man chat. I never would talk to him about what was going on in my life or, you know, what was happening like good and bad. And I, you know, I look back at now, I think when I'm driving home on the motorway, I'm stuck on the M1 for like an hour. I wish I could pick up the phone and go, oh, dad, I've had a really bad day today. And like, and have that conversation and ask him the same thing as well. You know, I wish I could do those things. And it's always hindsight, you know, as you get older, people will say hindsight's a gift and stuff. And, you know, but when you're younger, you don't think about these things. You just think you're invincible and you're going to change the world. Daniel wishes he could still speak to his dad so that he could say what he really wanted to say to him and for his dad to be proud of the new career that he chose. It's a reminder for me to speak openly with my dad and my stepdad about how much they mean to me and it's also an invitation for you to do that with yours as well. I think it was an incredibly strong and manly thing to do to say I don't want to do this job anymore and I want to walk away from the family business. Some other men out there might think it was a cowardly choice to stop but I think it took a lot of strength to say, I don't want to continue doing this. I think that's real self-awareness to really stand up for what you believe in. Daniel has gone on to having a very successful career, but the trauma of that event has made waves throughout his whole life and has morphed into a fear of failure. But the way he deals with it is through having a fantastic network of people that are there to support him. 
Who is part of the support network in your life that helps you face your fears? Before you go, let me tell you about our man test. The team and I created it with the belief that every man has hidden, untapped potential and I want to help you discover what it could be. Let's face it, we've all got dreams and aspirations, but the stresses of life can get in the way. I know I've been there myself. As men, each one of us has skills and knowledge that sets us apart from the rest. It's about discovering what they are and making the most of them. The man test is simple. It takes less than three minutes and will help you discover your true strengths and talents by working out what kind of modern man you really are. Find the link in the show notes and take the man test today. You never know, you might just learn something new about yourself that you didn't know before.